I'm Allison. And I'm Ruth. And this is Digital Nibble. It's June 12th, and that means it's time for another edition of Digital Nibbles. I'm Allison Klein, and I'm joined by Reuven Cohen. Hey, Ruth, how's it going? Hey, Allison, how are you doing? It's been a, been a long time, huh? I know. I was on hiatus when I was on my uh, sabbatical. I think the best um, benefit of working at Intel is that we get uh, two months off every seven years, and I was uh, gone for a while, so we put uh, Digital Nibbles um, on hiatus for a while, but we're back. Yeah, it's it's been a been a bit of busy couple months, and I know you've uh, covered a lot of the planet over that time as well, huh? Yeah, I was I was traveling in Asia, uh, did some tr- domestic travel as well, had a very good time, and um, spent a good portion of my sabbatical in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. I I love Portland, and I don't spend enough downtime there because I'm usually working, so that was really nice. But man, I, I've been following you. You've been everywhere, and. Uh, Technology has not exactly slowed down since I went on sabbatical. So why don't you tell me what are the latest things that you're looking at and and that you're the most excited about? Well, it's been you're right. It's been an interesting couple of months, and we don't have time to go through all the amazing, crazy things that have uh, that have happened. But uh, you know, so let, let's let's stick with some of the news of, of the day. I think one of the more interesting things that happened over you know the last couple of weeks, anyway, was this story that Apple agreed to buy uh, the Beats headphone maker for three billion dollars, which is you know pretty crazy. And it was leaked, I think, in a, in a drunken Dr. Dre web video, just to add to the whole sort of, uh, I don't know, kind of strange deal in itself. You know, what, what do you think of that deal? It's interesting. You know, obviously Beats has a great uh, brand recognition um, in, in consumers, but, you know, it, it makes you wonder why Apple is willing to invest so much in headphones and how that fits into their larger strategy. So I'm interested to see how that, that kind of continues to roll forward um, as the acquisition solidifies and, and, and we see how this, this fits in with some of their upcoming product offerings. And the funniest number I saw in this whole thing was apparently their basic model of a headphones, not, not the wireless ones, but the ones with the, the cord that everybody wears, costs $18 to manufacture and they sell for about 400 Yeah, that's kind of a nice profit margin, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, seriously. I, I thought that it was interesting also, and I know that you're an average user, user of Twitter, so you'll enjoy this. The CIA launched Twitter and Facebook accounts recently. I don't know if you saw that. Um, I, I wasn't expecting that, to be honest with you. I, I can neither confirm nor deny whether I, I was uh, – I like that uh, – no, actually, that was their first tweet, which was pretty priceless. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. kind of kind of fun to see them, and I think they're they've hit about two hundred thousand followers within uh, you know several hours. So uh, apparently, people don't mind uh, putting a name on the old follow list for the CIA. You know, the, there was an, also an interesting story that came out this week. I'm not, not sure if you saw in regards to this thing called the Turing test, which is essentially the test that determines whether or not uh, a computer can pass off as a human. And uh, this, this computer called the Eugene. Um, a computer program called Eugene Gustman, which simulates a 13-year-old Ukrainian boy, which seems pretty random, but is said to have passed the uh, Turing test, which investigates, again, whether people can detect if they're talking to a machine or a human. And, it, and this is a test that was devised, uh, I think, about 65 years ago. And uh, this is one of the first, uh, apparently one of the first times that it's it convinced 
uh, at least 33% of the judges at this Royal Society in London. So interesting to note. It's interesting to wonder why they chose a 13-year-old Ukrainian boy as their their target model for uh, engagement. If there's something that's uh, easier to program there or um, if that was just something that they wanted to do. Kind of random. Mm-hmm. I like the one about, because I, I'm a big fan of 3D printing, and I feel like we talk about it all the time on the show. Um, I don't know if you saw about Vincent van Gogh's ear. No. Well, they uh, got some DNA from a descendant of Vincent van Gogh, and then they grew genetic tissue um, using 3D printing to resemble the ear that Van Gogh is said to have cut off in 1888. It's um, on display in a Center for Art and Media in Karlsruhe through the 6th of July, and they're keeping it alive in a case. So um, theoretically, this ear could live for years. Um, Interesting, not only in just kind of weird, but also, like, you know, a good sign of um, the ability to 3D print living tissue. Of dead artists from the 19th century, that it, it's, it's a little, little gross in, in some ways, and, and it actually goes to the <laughs> heart of, and the moral ethics of, of this type of modern sort of biotechnology and the things you can do with it. Imagine that, uh, you know, in a 500 years they, they, they resurrect us or something and without our consent in some kind of clone version, which is bizarre. So the other one that I think was one of those companies that you just start hearing about a lot is Docker. I don't know if you've been following Docker. I would assume you have. But they they delivered 1.0 and um, enterprise support. Um, They deliver containers uh, for the data center. Um, What do you think? I, I was at an event, and it seemed like uh, Docker was getting a lot of attention, but um, any perspective there, Ruth? You know, I, I've, I've been doing this virtualization stuff for a long time. And back in, back in the day, you know, let's, let's say about 11, 12 years ago, we, we were investigating the first versions of our own software, and we, we looked at container-based technologies back then, and you know, things like OpenVZ and user mode Linux were the topics, even Solaris containers. So the, the, the underlying tech has actually been around for a really, really long time. And what's interesting is it's essentially this kind of like 15, 20-year-old technology with this kind of new DevOps magic applied on top, which has kind of hit the right kind of pace at the right time to be this next big thing. So it's really, really interesting to see how it caught the attention of the kind of IT world. It, it's, it, it's marketing genius, let's just say. For sure. Um, before we get to our first guest, um, any uh, interesting things happened this day in history? You know, there there was a uh, George H. W. Bush uh, politician, 41st president of the United States, was born. So, and and I think I saw on the news this morning that he's actually jumping out of an airplane uh, doing some skydiving today. So, kind of, kind of interesting note. Yeah, I think he was celebrating up in at Kennebunkport, Maine, which I heard it on NPR and, and thought I haven't heard Kennebunkport for a number of years. That was exciting. Um, I think that uh, the other one that stood out to me was um, that uh, the German-American engineer, John Roebling, who designed the Brooklyn Bridge, was born in 1806, one of my favorite 
pieces of architecture, and Blake Ross, um, American software developer who co-created Mozilla Firefox. So a couple interesting people uh, born today. And you can't, but, you can't go ahead. forget about O.J. Simpson being acquitted in uh, 1994 on this day. Or, uh, or no, was this, was this, yeah, was it acquitted or was this the day that he was uh, went on his great chase? One of the two. I know it was a big day for us. I think that it's the 20th anniversary, so I think we'll be hearing about that for a while over the summer of, of different anniversaries associated with different milestones on that um, infamous case. But why don't we go ahead and go to a break, and why don't you tell the audience who we're going to be coming back with as our first guest? So we we uh, have, a, have a great lineup today. We, we've got Michael Crandell, who I've actually known for probably 10 years at this point. He's the CEO of RightScale. And we also have Dave McCrory, who's the CTO of Basho, a really cool uh, company as well. Well, let's take a break, and we'll come back with Michael. And welcome back to Digital Nibbles. I'm Reuven, and we're joined by Michael Crandell, who's the CEO of RightScale, and uh, a guy that I've known probably since, well, I think, at least 2006, and one of the earliest uh, cloud kind of guru CEOs in the business. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks, Reuven. Thanks, Allison. Great to join you. So, so let's start off the bat, and why don't you uh, talk a little bit about RightScale and, and the history of the company, and uh, where you think this fits into the overarching uh, trend in cloud computing. Sure. Uh, so I'm a CEO and co-founder of RightScale. We, we founded the company in 2007 and really since then have pioneered the field of cloud management. You know, cloud management is, is probably – one of the uh, the broadest terms around today. What you know? What, what does that uh, you know more specifically mean to our to our listeners? Well, it, it means a variety of things across public, private, and hybrid clouds, meaning all kinds of different environments, from the likes of Amazon Web Services, Google, Microsoft Azure, private VMware environments, or OpenStack environments. And it's really about uh, a variety of things that help users bridge between the various services that comprise those clouds, ranging from servers, networking, and storage, uh, up through higher-level services, to run their applications. So really, at the end of the day, it embraces things like orchestration, configuration management, auto-scaling. It embraces user management. Uh, but these days, also cost analytics to control how much you're spending, all the way through to presenting simple self-service interfaces to the business users and developers in larger organizations. Michael, when you talk to enterprises, you know, many talk about how they've adopted cloud in various forms in their data centers or, you know, taking advantage of services through providers. How many do you think have really gotten to the point where they're getting to some of the topics that you talked about, orchestration and automation of services and um, the ability for applications to to reconfigure resources within the data center to um, make adjustments to uh, service requirements. 
Well, you know, we do an annual state of the cloud survey and get about a thousand responses to it. Um, and we have tons of data from all of the basically cloud apps that we've helped our customers uh, enable and empower. And what we've seen is that really there's a spectrum of where companies are on the journey to cloud that ranges from those who are still kind of figuring out their strategy to those who are very cloud-focused and heavy users. So there's a spectrum there. In our survey, they fell into about equal buckets between cloud watchers, uh, which again are the, are the ones figuring out strategy, maybe those who are pilot testing some things all the way through to those who are running several production apps in the cloud. The ones who are more mature are certainly using uh, all of those orchestration and automation techniques. Um, and the ones in the beginning are, are just basically still figuring it out and dipping their toe in the water. So you, the, the cloud is, is certainly not a new phenomenon at this point. It's been around for, for actually quite a while. And the, you makes you wonder who are some of these laggards that are, that are just now dipping their toe and you know to, to the cloud pool. Um, it, it's it's almost amazing to me that that people are still you know saying that I'm not going to host any of my infrastructure. You know whether it's a small piece or all of it is, is irrelevant at some point in the cloud. You know it's interesting, Ruve, because you know you were obviously one of the pioneers too, and I know Allison, you're deep into it. Sometimes we forget that um, the broader swath of IT across uh, across companies is not necessarily so cutting edge or so quick to adopt. I read a tweet from Lydia Leong, who's Gartner analyst on infrastructure as a service, and she said, "We ran a survey that included a qualify, you know, a qualifying question that asked users to identify what was cloud and what wasn't. Um, before we did the survey, there was a 90% disqual rate. <laughs> so the reality is, there are people at all levels here, um, and and these kinds of revolutions take." longer than those of us who are used to uh, stuff happening fast. They just take longer than we expect. So let's get to right scale. Um, obviously, you've played a central role in this for a long time. Where do you see the, the market opportunities for right scale here, and, and where do you think that you are delivering something that is unique uh, for enterprise managers or, or cloud service providers to consider? So I, I think I'll turn back to this notion of the cloud as a revolution. We're in the midst of a revolution in, in, in IT, and it's a runaway revolution. Lots of people are using cloud, not everyone. They're at different stages. Basically, enterprise IT is at the point now where it's trying to bring some order to the revolution. We're well past the days when people thought it was avoidable that, hey, we don't use cloud, it's not secure, because it's happening in every organization. Uh, the survey also showed that 94% of people were actively using cloud. Um, the question, though, is how to govern, enable, and leverage it best. So where RightScale steps in is that uh, ultimately the cloud provider offerings and, and the tools vendors, which are offering things that are more friendly to enterprises, still this, this rogue or shadow IT consumption is not always very orderly, and, it, and therefore it doesn't always serve some basic needs of the organization around governance, compliance, how supportable are the apps being built, how secure are they, 
all the way through to cost efficiency, I, I would personally guess there's maybe 20 to 30 percent of spend on cloud is actually waste. It's people turning the lights on in a room and leaving and not turning them out. So there's huge opportunity to be more efficient there as well as to deliver what organization, what IT is supposed to do for the organization, which is make sure that what's running is secure, that it's compliant, that it's supportable, and that it's efficient. And, and that, that's a big part of what, what your company focuses on is this idea of sort of bringing the increased efficiency to the operational components of running sort of a infrastructure-focused cloud offering. And, and you, you did a, in the last couple of years, I think you did like an, uh, an economic uh, you know, sort of switch where you sort of start looking at the cost centers and cost structures of cloud. I mean, you know, what, what are your thoughts in, in that part of the market today? Yes, we did a small acquisition, and uh, it became a, a site called Plan for Cloud, which lets customers do cl- cost forecasts. But we've expanded that now, and it's a, a core part of the platform. Um, we call it Cloud Portfolio Management. Um, so it expands cloud management uh, across the areas of cost from backward-looking usage analysis to forward forecasting. And our belief is, and what we find in the field, is that really you need to marry the cost analysis with how you're actually managing the resources. Um, It's not something that a a financial person can just look at and make intelligent decisions about which servers can be shut down or not, or which ones could run on maybe less expensive, less powerful instances. That's something where the cost analytics needs to be wedded with the actual management. And in terms of reaching enterprise goals, that's what we're delivering today, and we we marry those things together so that automation can serve financial goals as well as performance goals. And then ultimately, we also put that together in in what we call a self-service interface, which lets IT design workloads that stitch together the many services that cloud providers offer in a way that they can approve but still allow business users and developers just push-button access to launch these things and provide the agility that, uh, that really has driven the cloud revolution. When it comes to the enterprise customer, you know, I think that one of the challenges is some of the um, organizational changes that need to go into these new models beyond just the technology when you're speaking to enterprises, how do you address those types of um, opportunities to, to help them on that path? Well, um, you're absolutely right. These days in making a cloud decision strategy or acquisition, unless it's in the bottoms-up format, which is kind of the runaway consumption that we all see, um, as that consumption grows, it inevitably bumps squarely into the central IT department, Often um, CFOs and finance folks are involved. The CEO is standing up there saying, let's use cloud, it's more efficient. Um, So you have a lot of personalities involved. Uh, And we found at the end of the day that 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 can be tricky, but ultimately what you want to do is provide some kind of platform where all their needs are met. It's simply not enough. And, you know, I'd refer here to something you, you guys have talked about on the show, which is, is infrastructure as a service and platform as a service, are they blurring? Um, In my view, they're already completely blurred, and there's a huge spectrum of services um, ranging in between that everybody has access to. The issue, though, is 
it doesn't work in a larger company to just have individuals go out and stitch those together themselves. You need some kind of organizing platform where they can be stitched together in a way that, uh, you know, delivers the agility, but again, is compliant with company rules and policies, maybe regulations that govern your industry, and cost efficiency. And ultimately, a platform that delivers both needs is really going to, in, in our view, serve that multi-constituency that we see so often in enterprise customers. You know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of this, this convergence, and, I, you know, this is a topic we've had in terms of the infrastructure components and the things, you know, more commonly referred to as platform. And it, it, it's come to, you know, to seem that the, the industry as a whole is, is kind of pulling toward the two together. And whether, whether we want to admit it or not, the, there's a lot of overlap between what we refer to as infrastructure as a service and, and platforms as a service. Again, if you look at the, the products themselves and how they're generally marketed, evangelized, and, and, and positioned, there, there's this push to keep them apart for some reason. And, and you get in these conversations at these cloud conferences and tech shows and whatnot, and people will, will vehemently argue that a platform as a service should not, cannot, will not be an infrastructure component. And it, it, to me, it seems a bit asinine. So, you know, I, I, I agree with what you're saying completely in, in that, can, you know, kind of can, can converged future for, for the, the cloud stack and the, and the tools you need to combine all those, all those pieces together. Right. And, you know, it's, uh, the reality is in IT, I think you, I'd be interested in your opinion, Rube, I think you've seen it too, is that there's a tremendous amount of heterogeneity out there, people piecing together um, highly varied solutions. There's no sort of one-size-fits-all way. I, I think if there were a theme song for IT, it would be Fleetwood Mac's Go Your Own Way, because that's <laughs> what IT pros usually do. They're they're pulling together discrete services. One wants to use database as a service. The other wants to run their own MySQL servers. Somebody else wants to use a, you know, a distributed database and uh, NoSQL and so on. And there is no one-size-fits-all. So people have tremendous variety they can choose from. And that in itself is powerful, but it also creates problems uh, for how you bring that together, how you make it supportable and maintainable. And, uh, you know, I think at the ends of the spectrum, the bare infrastructure as a service, simple compute storage and networking, or pure platform as a service, those are interesting definitional ideals. But the reality is everybody's playing across dozens and dozens of services in the middle. Now, now, now I know what song was playing when, when I checked into the Hotel California. <laughs> This is getting ugly. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for introducing some of these concepts in, into the dialogue today. It's been a great conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So if some of our Digital Nibbles guests, or excuse me, audience wants to continue the conversation with you and with RightScale, where would you suggest they go for more information? Uh, well, first of all, thanks, Rube. Thanks, Allison. Um, it's great to be on. Uh, they can go to our website, rightscale.com. It, it has that state of the cloud report that I mentioned with lots of interesting info, and it's right there on the web. Thanks again for joining us. And we'll be right back with our second guest. And 
we're back with Dave McCrory, CTO of Basho. Welcome, Dave. Hi, thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for being on. Why don't we just start with an introduction of Basho? Sure. Basho is a distributed database technology in the uh, NoSQL space. Um, that's one of the newer data storage uh, things to emerge from the use of cloud. Um, and uh, we offer the ability to uh, write data in one place and have it automatically replicated to another. So uh, clustered, redundant, um, uh, highly available, and uh, scalable data storage. That's what we do. You know, it, it, it's really good to have you on the show, Dave, but the problem with having the show is I, I actually don't know where to start. Should, should I be asking you about the recent Cloud Foundry uh, events, or should I be talking about some of the, uh, you know, new discussions around data gravity? You know, what, what's, what's exciting for you these days? I think the better question would be what isn't exciting for me these days. Uh, it seems like there are so many things happening uh, right now in the space cloud is finally um, starting to uh, starting to get traction from the uh, platform as a service perspective so that would be on the cloud foundry side I, I just spoke at uh, CF summit uh, a couple of days ago um, I was speaking about uh, implementing enterprise platform as a service at, uh, at QCon today um, I've been speaking with customers on the basho side uh, around uh, our upcoming release of, uh, of 2.0. Uh, data gravity is uh, is becoming used more and more uh, on a daily basis. Um, there's actually quite a bit of uh, research I've been doing uh, that hopefully I'll get a chance to uh, to publish. I've been so busy I haven't had time to, uh, to write or fill in uh, any of the details or thoughts I've had around data gravity, gravity recently. So can you, for those in our audience who haven't spent much time with data gravity. Just give us a high-level definition why this is so impactful uh, in terms of the concept. Sure. So the idea behind data gravity is um, as you begin to uh, write data, um, whether it's uh, in the cloud or in your own data center, um, you create this data and uh, to access the data, you need applications. And those applications, when they access the data, uh, usually end up creating more data. So the data grows and grows and grows. And uh, as the data gets used, more applications want to use the data. So you end up with this effect of, of, effect of growing data. And as that occurs, uh, say, for example, in Amazon, um, you end up with applications that uh, that want to get closer to the data. And being closer to the data really means that you get faster access to the data. So uh, that means you have uh, lower access time or latency, and you can uh, get more of the data in, uh, in one pass. So that would be greater bandwidth. So that latency and bandwidth combination is really that gravitational pull. The closer I get to the data, the more advantage uh, I have as far as access. The downside is um, if you've built an application that requires uh, that high-performance, high-speed access, if you want to move it away from that data source, it becomes really difficult, just like trying to escape gravity. So in, in a nutshell, what you're saying is, is depending on the type of 
of application and the sort of correlation to that app and the data that is either consumed or, or output, it, it, it has a distinct sort of effect on how you deploy it. So, for example, if you have a large amount of data, you might want to move your, your application components to the data rather than moving your data to the, the, uh, the app, which might sit somewhere else. Is that the general idea? Absolutely. Um, it's one of the reasons why we saw all of the effects a few years ago of uh, Amazon's EC2 East going down. So many people wanted high-speed access to the data and apps there that everyone lumped all of their uh, data and applications in one place. So when it went down, uh, everybody went with it. So what does this do in your mind um, when you consider something like sensor networks and the Internet of Things? How would, how would someone assess where the analytics needs to reside? I think it depends on the I think it depends on the complexity of the of the analytics and what you're trying to do. There there are analytics that are better done at the edge um, or near the edge uh, where the sensors are. Uh, the reason for that would be um, if you're trying to make as rapid a decision as you possibly can um, with with the data that's near the sensors, then you would want the processing to happen near the sensors. If, however, you need the aggregate um, information from all of the sensors, it's faster to do that in a central place where all of the sensors that you need with all of the data um, is centralized. So again, to Ruth's point of, do you move the, the application to the data or the data to the application? Um, so depending on the scenario, you could even end up with both. Some things you're doing uh, analytics at the edge of that uh, uh, sensor network or Internet of Things, and then other things you're trying to look at the big picture or all of uh, what the sensors are doing, and you would do that in one central place. Let's jump into this uh, no no SQL type of uh, discussion. I know you're you're now CTO over at Basho, and you guys kind of have popularized this this approach to kind of an alternative cloud centric database. You know what 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 is the primary motivator for companies that are looking at this type of technology? The primary motivator is to uh, is to start putting data in uh, in the optimal place depending on what your use is. So if you're using data in, in quote-unquote, a, a distributed fashion, say in cloud, or you need that um, scalability, it's much easier on a system uh, like ours where you can simply add nodes to increase performance and capacity than, say, a traditional relational database. Something people forget, relational databases have been around for what, 30 years, uh, potentially longer than that now. Um, they were built around the idea that hardware was very scarce and expensive. So you had a scarcity of resources, and you needed to make the absolute maximum use of each one of those resources because they were so incredibly expensive. Um, and the idea was that you needed to, uh, to deal with your data in the same way. So fast forward 30 years, there's now an abundance of compute resources. Uh, you, can, you can rent uh, processing for pennies. Um, capacity is, uh, is thousands of times what it was uh, before. And so what's happened is uh, now we use uh, many systems or a distributed set of systems. And so um, the paradigm of 
putting the exact same relational database on top of something like that just doesn't work. So you need alternative ways to store and deal with data, um, and Basho provides a, a way of doing that. There are other companies that do as well. Uh, we just think we have the best solution. When you think about the market opportunity, obviously, you know, and I was thinking about the, the model we were discussing earlier, um, it almost comes down to tiering of, of analytics, tiering of data. Um, where do you see the market growing in this space, and where, where are you most excited for Basho's engagement? I think, um, I think the market is going to grow with, um, with enterprises slowly deciding to move off of relational databases due to costs and such and, uh, and creating new modernized applications that, uh, that aren't client-server. Uh, they're more web-enabled or something uh, along those lines. And so I see a migration over time uh, to more NoSQL solutions. And I see the, uh, the revenues that were being spent with those relational database vendors uh, being spent on, uh, on other storage solutions, such as Basho, uh, ultimately realizing that I'm not saying that the relational database world disappears because there is a set of problems of which relational databases are best suited. Um, I, I think the, the realization, though, is that that's probably only 15 or 20 percent of the problems that uh, relational databases are being used for today, which means uh, that's a huge opportunity for a company like Bashan. You know, the, the irony is if you talk to some of these, you know, relational database vendors, we won't, won't pick on anyone in particular, they, they are, their response to what you just said is almost the exact opposite. They, they say, well, they, they agree with you that there's, you know, need for multiple sort of architectures for how you interact with, you know, d database structures. But they'll say that there's, you know, you know re relational databases are probably 80 to 85 percent of the, the market for, you know, these types of applications. And, but they're, you know, these the sort of, you know, cloud-style, NoSQL-style approach, column-orientated databases are out there are a small subsection, you know, according to them, 10 or 15% of the market. You know, what, is, is that just marketing fluff or, you know, are they, is, the, is, there, is that dependent on the industry you're in? Like, what, where's this massive it, kind of... It, it's today versus tomorrow. So today, they're right. Uh, NoSQL solutions probably account for um, probably 10% or less of the overall market. Um, if we talk about maybe five years from now, um, I think it'll be a very different picture, kind of like, uh, as you know, uh, uh, Ruth, I go back pretty far in the days of uh, virtualization and, and yeah. cloud as well. Um, when virtualization first came out and you would talk to uh, hardware vendors and such, they would all tell you, oh, virtualization, it's a niche market. There are only a few uses for it. Everybody's still buying the, the big iron, and they will just keep doing that. And we don't really see a lot of use for, uh, for virtual machines. Um, if you looked, say, seven years down the road, everything had flip-flopped. And now in most enterprises, um, the majority of things are put into virtual machines. And there's a very small subset that are a special fit for actual bare metal. Yeah, you know, I, I should have mentioned to our audience uh, your, your, a little bit of your background. So for, for those of you that don't know, uh, Dave, back, I think it was like 2001, you had one of the first patents 
that actually use the word cloud in, in context to like an infrastructure sort of deployment, which is quite amazing. So you, you've got ma massive spread. Thank you. Yeah, right. that was uh, that was my partner and I. Um, and you're right, it was back in 2001. Dave, that was one of the reasons why we were so delighted to have you on the show today. And unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. So um, my last question for you is, if folks want to learn more about Basho, uh, want to connect with you, where would they do so? And um, you know, what types of resources would you recommend for them? Um, sure. So I would tell them uh, they can contact us at basher.com. Uh, they can reach me um, at, at Dave at basher.com or on Twitter. It's just my last name on Twitter, which is M-C-C-R-O-R-Y on Twitter. Um, how should they start learning more about it? Um, I would recommend that they read about uh, some of the successes that have happened in the market, whether it be with Basho or any of the other companies in the space. There are quite a few people that have had uh, have amazing stories around using uh, NoSQL technology. Dave, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. And Alton, Thank you. we've got a, we've got one of our uh, old pals joining us on the on the next uh, episode of of our show. Who who is that? Um, ben Caps will be back. Um, I never know how to introduce Ben because he wears so many hats, but he's a cloud thought leader that's been um, on the show many times. Avid blogger um, runs runs his own. Um, uh, analyst firm as well, so it'll be great to have him on. And then Kin Lane, um, who is an API evangelist, how appropriate to have somebody on that is uh, focused on APIs, will be on the show as well, and that'll be on June 26th at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. Looking forward to it. I'll, I'll uh, talk to you in a couple weeks. All right, Ruth. Well, it's good to feel back in the flow with Digital Nibbles. Uh, I'll talk to you in two weeks. Thank you.